Turn with me in your Bibles uh, once again this morning to the book of James. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, pull out your bulletin. The passage for this morning is found in the insert there. If you're visiting this morning, uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, it is our weekly practice as we worship our great God to spend time in His Word. The Apostle Peter told the church that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we need God's Word for our souls and for our life like we need food and water for our physical lives. And so these words that I'm about to read to you are so much more than just ancient words of ancient documents and correspondences. These words are alive, living and active, piercing to the soul, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So this morning we continue our study of this first century letter uh, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to the early church and that the Holy Spirit has given us and has preserved for us his people here in Edmonds, Washington in 2018. It's an intensely practical letter. I hope that you have felt that. I hope that your lives have reflected that. It's a letter about how to live out your faith in Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to a pivotal passage in the letter. And a pivotal passage not just for the letter of James, but really for the entire Christian life. And if you were here last week, the pump was, was primed for you a bit. If you remember the discussion about false wisdom versus true wisdom. For those of you who weren't here, let me just uh, bring you up to speed real briefly. False wisdom, we said, God's word said, is all about me. It's motivated by my selfish ambition. It has no view beyond uh, the here and now. And so when things go badly, I, I self-protect because after all, it's all about my happiness. And when I self-protect with those around me, I create disorder and chaos, James reminds us. But true wisdom is meek and gentle, right? It looks and smells like, like Jesus. It recognizes that it's not all about me. It's about God. It's about his will, and therefore, that kind of wisdom in relationships, in community, creates peace. And that's where we ended. That's where we ended last week, the last verse of chapter 3, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Today, we're reminded that we need the wisdom that results in peace. Because we live in a world of quarrels and fights. Would anyone like to argue with me about this fact? That we live in a world of quarrels and fights and conflicts. Maybe your last quarrel and fight and conflict was on the way to church this morning or in the foyer before you got in this room. 
Listen and follow along as I read James chapter 4. We're going to plow through the first 10 verses, which I think all hold together with James's thought. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Listen as I read. James writes, what causes... <laughs> That was a funny accent. What causes, I was rolling into the queue is what I was doing. What, okay, let's start over. Here we go. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He, that is Jesus, that is God Himself, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Three things that I want us to see and to meditate on from this passage this morning. God's word, I think, shows us powerfully three things something about ourselves, something about our God and something about His grace. James James wants us to see these three things that we are changed. And the first one is this. You must recognize the war raging inside you. You must recognize the war raging inside you. I want to begin this morning with a scenario that I suspect some of you can in some way relate to. It was Wednesday afternoon of this past week. I'd been working here at Edmonds Church of God in my office here, and I'd been working all day on other things but had not made a lot of progress on my study of this passage, on my study of this very sermon So no worries, I thought to myself at about 3 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon. I've got several hours to make some serious headway 
I'll just stay a little bit later tonight. I'll come home after dinner sometime, and it'll be fine. And then my wife, Anna, calls. She has a migraine. Whitney needs to be picked up at five. Abby needs to be at driver's ed by six. Can I carry the load for her and do all of that driving? Now remember, my sweet wife is home in pain. She's not at Nordstrom's. She's not downtown with her friends sipping on drinks. She's in bed with a migraine. And despite that, I could feel this this war inside me. I was frustrated. My agenda, my plans, my godly plans all just got blown up. And so I got quiet. Are you serious? I asked. Yeah, real loving. Are you serious? I asked with annoyance in my voice. Fine, fine, I'll do it. And I hung up the phone. Only, only later in the car did I really sort through all that was going on in my heart. And only after she apologized for messing up my plans, which she didn't need to do, did I circle back with her and tell her that I was glad to help and that I was so sorry that she was feeling bad. What was going on? in all of that. What a beautiful irony from the Lord for Pastor Nate. It was exactly what I was studying. And it's exactly what goes on every day in our lives to some degree. This war inside. James begins our passage this morning by asking a rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Notice what he does not say causes quarrels and fights. It is not, well, you just don't have enough skills in conflict resolution. If you had those, then you'd be good. He does not say you need these strategies, these three strategies to avoid quarrels and fights and conflicts. Nor does he say, as we so often do, you and I, well, if that person hadn't done blank, or if this event hadn't happened, then I never never would have gotten upset. It's not our lack of skill set. It's not our circumstances that are at the root of our conflicts. It's the war that rages inside us. As my pastor friend once said, James tells us here to trade your binoculars in for a mirror. Stop looking everywhere else for the root of your conflicts and your quarrels. And look at yourself, it's your passions, it's your desires, it's your coveting. Another way to say it is that you have unmet needs and you have uncontrolled wants. You desire and do not have, 
so you murder. Now James is not talking about the literal killing of people within the church of God. He's talking about Jesus' words in Matthew 5 that we can be murderously angry at people. And that yes, if, if unchecked, anger, murderous anger turns in to real murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, James says. Now, in the context of James's letter, in the context of his audience, he's writing to a people in the church. We've already speculated maybe he's addressing these leaders of, of chapter 3, verse 1 that he talked about when he talked about not many of you should be teachers. And he's writing in this context of people who, who possibly wanted wisdom. They, they've been wrestling. They want to know how to be wise. They want to know how to live in community, but they're misguided in where to find it because they're driven by their selfish ambition. They're driven by me, their pride, and their own agendas, and it destroys the people around them. And James says here, even their prayers are self-focused, and the Lord doesn't want to hear them. You must recognize the war that wages inside of you. Now, it's not, going back to that situation I spoke of this past week in my own heart, it's not that I shouldn't have had desires or goals for the day. It's not that you shouldn't have desires. There certainly are some desires that are, that are downright sinful, but my desire to work on my sermon into the night was a good one. But I functionally wanted my schedule and my agenda to work above everything else. And so, James is saying, we erect these little idols in our hearts. We take good desires and we misplace them. We make them all about us rather than about others, rather than about you. And so in that instance, my wife took this good, excuse me, my heart took this good desire and made it more important than my need to serve my wife and to love her. Do you see why this question and answer that James gives us is so important and pivotal for our lives? Because this happens all the time in the smallest of ways. It's about my little kingdom of self and about God's kingdom. Will it be my agenda at all costs Or will it be God's agenda, wherever and whenever that comes about? That's what James is saying here. Recognize the war that rages inside you and turn from it. Turn from it. We need, we need to begin to pray like David prays in Psalm 139, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Help me sort out what I'm erecting for my little kingdom 
and what I'm submitting to your kingdom. That's the first step that's so critical for our relationship, so critical for our life of faith. But then what? Well, James gives us more help to undergird this fact. And that's the second thing I want us to see this morning about the nature of our God. And it's this. God loves you as his bride. God loves you as his bride. To those of you who are married, do you remember the emotion that you felt on the day of your wedding? How in love you were, how your fiance at that time could not do anything wrong. And in many ways, it was such an innocent love. But the love I feel now for my wife is deeper and more meaningful than than even that day 23 years ago because I know her and she knows me and we still love one another despite all of that, because of all of that. And God, excuse me, James reminds his people that God loves you and I like that. The Bible gives us lots of pictures to help us understand our relationship with the Lord, a relationship to a God that we can't completely get our heads around. It talks about Him being the potter and that we are the clay. He is the King of kings and we are the citizens in His kingdom. He is our Father and we are His sons and daughters. And they all convey something about the nature of our relationship and also the nature of the God who established that relationship. But there is no image that the Bible gives that is more captivating, that is more intimate than the fact that Jesus loves you, God loves you as his bride. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, the nations shall see your righteousness. All the kings, your glory, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, here we go, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as, your, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. you read the whole book of Hosea, and that picture between Hosea and Gomer that the Lord gives this is who he is. This is who we are. And so returning to James, the kind of language that he uses here makes sense. It finds its foundation in the Old Testament. Verse 4, you adulterous people. 
Verse five, the Lord says, he yearns jealously. Loving your spouse the way you do. Don't you long for, don't you expect, don't you demand exclusive affection and devotion? Of course you do. And so does God. I don't know how that hits you when you hear that God is a jealous God. I think a lot of us sometimes think that that makes God sound like he's he's petty or he's, he's needy. I want to read you a quote, a helpful quote that I found this week, understanding God's jealousy. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from her life of shame, forgives her, marries her, gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. And his jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse." And so James is teaching us here that bowing to self, bowing to worldly wisdom, bowing to these idols of the heart that we erect, our own agenda that we trump and we put over God's agenda is actually friendship with the world and enmity with God. This is not the casualness of Facebook friendship. This is turning our backs on the lover of our souls. And so as James is telling you, you've got to recognize the war that's waging inside of you. He's undergirding it with God loves you as a bride. He's jealous for you. He's called you to himself and yet all you seem to do is flirt with the world. And exalt yourself. Of course, this was Israel's constant battle as we read in the Old Testament. I don't have time to read it, but read Ezekiel 16, and you'll see, you'll hear this imagery. God longs for our good and for His glory, which He has intertwined together. For us to experience true humanity, true wisdom, true fullness, true life, true peace, the life that we were made and the life that we were married for, married to Him for. And instead, so often we we're like the people of Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Brothers and sisters, James calls us this morning to recapture this vision of God's love for his people. A love that sent Jesus so that you and I could be forgiven. A love that has left his spirit so that we might walk as his beloved bride. See, this is a love that's described by words such as committed. Committed. 
and passionate and intimate. God loves you as his bride. Catch that vision and walk in it. And that brings us to our final truth this morning. It's right out of the text. Five words. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Five game-changing words. It all begins here. This is the way forward. There is hope for our relationships. There is hope for our quarrels and conflicts. God is committed to his people. God is committed to the brokenness of his people. And despite the bent of your heart and my heart towards self, despite idolatry and spiritual adultery that results to those who would receive it, to those who would humble themselves and ask for it, he gives more grace. And so in a series of imperatives, verses 6 through 10, he lays out this life of faith that flows from grace. This is more than Sunday morning, give God an hour and a half of my day Christianity. This is a life that is wrapped around the gospel. And it begins and ends. It's all bookended there in our passage, verse 6 and verse 10, by humility. By humility. Grace flows freely to the humble. To those who lay themselves aside and acknowledge that, that I can't do it on my own. God, if you just leave me to myself, I will quarrel and fight and set up my kingdom of self every second of every day. As we've seen in this passage, we, we need to say, I can't even pray rightly without your grace. Because the people of James' day, they were praying, but they were praying all about their passion, all about their selfish ambitions, all about their little kingdoms, as opposed to saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a life that could be summed up by John's pithy verse, pithy phrase in John 3.30. He must increase. I must decrease. He must become more. I must become less. And so as we close, I want to think about these four punchy encouragements, these four things that he calls us to. They don't stand distinct from one another. They overlap. They envelop one another. But he gives grace to walk in these things. Verses eight and nine. Brothers and sisters, get serious about your sin, James says. Get serious about your sin. If we were to go back to David's prayer, search me and know me, what does he say after that? See if there be in me any offensive way. 
We need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to mourn and weep over our sin. We need to, as James says, we need to cleanse our hands, repent and confess to one another, and pursue purity. When, when was the last time you confessed sin to a brother or sister? If you can't remember, maybe that's a problem. Feel the weight of your sin. Get serious about your sin. James' original hearers, it's clear from this passage and from James' exhortation that they were thinking lightly of their sin. Apparently, they thought their behavior was something to be laughed about. It was not that big of a deal. And I think that's the bent of all of our hearts naturally is we want to minimize, we want to tamp down the seriousness of our sin. But in doing so, we tamp down the holiness of God. And so as the Lord is searching your heart in these mundane moments when you feel that war raging and starting to come up, Get serious, run from it, repent of it. That's the first thing. The second thing is in verse seven, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Of course, if we are getting serious about our sin, that's part of our resistance to the devil. There's no, the devil made me do it. There's no God backed me into a corner. James has already gone over that. God doesn't tempt to sin. Resist the devil. You have the Spirit of Christ within you. And you can walk in righteousness. You're tempted, sure, but you're responsible for the choices you make. You have the power to live for Him. You have the power to say, your will be done, not mine. And when you make that response to grace, He will flee. James also says, verse 7, submit to God. Give your allegiance to him. Put yourself under his authority, the authority of his word, the authority of his church. Continuing David's prayer, search me and know me. See if there is any offensive way in me. And then what's the next phrase? And lead me in the way everlasting. I submit myself to you. I submit my agenda to you. And then finally, verse eight. Draw near to God. Get serious about your sin, resist the devil, submit to God, and verse 8, draw near to God. Boy, this is a big topic. <laughs> Let me just say this. Since the words, since the idea of friendship with the world is, is brought up in this passage, friendship with the world is enmity with God, I want you to flip that. Think about cultivating a friendship with God. And we often don't think about that picture. We've talked about king and citizen and potter and clay and father and son and daughter. And we don't often think about friends. But that's a biblical picture. Eugene Peterson, who, a retired pastor who just went to be with the Lord couple weeks ago, he wrote about friendship and he says, a friend is totally about 
Friendship is totally about a relationship, not a function. There is an everyday, ordinary quality to it. We find ourselves friends with people not for what they can do for us, but for simply who they are. Remember, God loves you as a bride. God came into the garden looking for Adam and Eve. He walked in the garden with them. He longs for your fellowship. Draw near to Him through His Word, through His community. Brothers and sisters, this is the life to which we're called a life that serves the kingdom of God rather than self, a life that He gives the grace to live. And in that grace, I would encourage you to recognize the war raging inside you, to remember how God sees you, how He loves you as His bride, and to humbly respond more of you, God, and less of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, which speaks so practically into our lives, into our relationships, into our hearts. And I would ask, Father, that you would take these words, take these truths, May they find a home in the hearts of your people that we might be changed, that your name might be glorified. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.